Welcome to the Obey Podcast, where we see through mainstream narrative. No propaganda, no bullshit, just the truth. And now, here's your host, Matthew Keck. Hello, everybody, and thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Obey Podcast for September 5th. So this is going to very much bounce off the episode from yesterday, where I talked about why a lot of news is pseudo-news, because it it doesn't really matter or affect your day-to-day life, yet it's crammed down our throats via the mainstream press as if it is valid and as if it will impact all of your lives. Um, And I'm seeing that very, very present in a lot of the stories that are coming up, especially in the last day. Uh, So I I guess the first one I'd mention is a member of Antifa who who self-identified as a member of Antifa. His name was Michael. I I don't know if I'm pronouncing his last name right. It's a, I think it's Reinal. Um, So he was suspected of shooting a Trump supporter in a standoff. He was interviewed by Vice uh, following following this incident, and I believe that interview was on the 3rd, and he pretty much said that he had to shoot a guy or else one of his friends who was a a person of color would die, and there really isn't a lot of evidence to support that if you watch the video, but that's what uh, Michael ends up claiming. Then he ends up in a standoff with police and gets killed by the cops, right, because he was shooting back, and it was a whole firefight, and he died, and... So all, all of this happens, and the, the, this is pushed on the mainstream press, and it's just it's just all there and pushed in a way that is going to make people hate each other more and make their side as more right and holy than the other side. And it's not policy-related, and it doesn't really affect your life, but it's this culture war that continues to push people away from each other because it's such a polarizing issue. Um, there, there, there's this episode of South Park where they talk about trolling a lot. Right, and it, it, it was they, they they did a whole season that's not very good, but it's every episode builds off each off the previous episode, which is abnormal for South Park. And one of the dads is an online trolling like he's a fanatic, he's an expert, and the whole idea is you 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 say something that is mostly true but partially wrong, and then the thing that is partially wrong causes a whole slew of people to overreact. And then people overreact when they see an overreaction, and then that, you know, it, it's it's like this bubble that starts with one interaction that sets off some people, but then those people shouldn't really be set off. It's not that big of a deal, which sets off a whole another group of people, and this whole chain pursues until everybody is pr- pretty upset by something. And it, I, th- I think this is a very valid way to look at trolling, and I think this is a way you could look at the news now. Because what pretty much happens is there, there will be an incident that looks initially bad and no one can say that on you know f- first side of it with little information that it looks bad but what ends up happening is then you find out something about the person who was a victim like the person who was killed by the cops you find out that they were they, they had like credibly been accused of sexual assault and then you hear that they may have had a knife at one point during the incident so now you have some people who say well I'm not going to feel bad for a sexual assault assailant and then a bunch of other people say, but he was shot eight times in the back, right? So you have all these people who pretty much agree, but they are overreacting to things that are 
I, I, I guess, upsetting, right? So, so if you're set off by one fact and then another person thinks that's the fact you should ignore, then there's conflict here, even though you mostly think at least agree on the optics. So it's like the, these situations that are, um, God, what's the word for that? They're, they're, they're like those inkblot tests. It's a Rorschach test. And when you and another person disagree on them, you end up thinking you're very, very far apart. And, the, and the, this is the kinds of stories that we're seeing come up a lot, especially in the last two months, all about, say, Antifa and Black Lives Matter. And if it was justified for this person during this riot or protest to shoot back at this other person. And it's all these Rorschach tests where it's really like a microcosm of an incident. And then people are trying to evaluate if they were in those shoes, if that was the morally right way to act. And it doesn't really matter in the sense that it happened. It doesn't necessarily broaden out to any narrative that is true. Yet we're acting like this is a symptom that clearly shows that, say, uh, everybody in the country that is white is racist. So you have all these broad narratives being strung out from one event or a handful of events that aren't necessarily represents they're not representative of all of the United States of America, but they're either being presented that way and the counter reaction to that will discount other parts of the movement and so forth. And it's just this chain of disagreement on stuff that isn't even directly impacting your life. Not, 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 there isn't a single thing about this that has to do with how, you know, everybody gets 30% of their money taken by the government and the majority of it is wasted on dumb policies. And th this is how, as we're nearing an election, nobody's talking about policies that are consistently bipartisan, that are pretty much evil, and most people don't like. And, the, the, and so this is kind of why, even though that they can say America's polarized, I think Joe Biden and Donald Trump are pretty similar. And it's because neither of them are overtly running on or at least planning to change what is happening overseas right now. You have Trump, who's ran on anti-war rhetoric, but not a lot changed in his four years. It was another, uh, you know, thing, things as usual, four years of a typical U.S. president, because pretty much everybody adopts the same policy once they're abroad. And the only quibbling on it comes from partisans that are usually like neoconservatives saying, oh, look, this person didn't double down enough on something. So they're, they're being, you know, a dove. But in reality, Barack Obama didn't end all the wars in the Middle East. He didn't really act as a dove. He was willing to drone people who were American citizens and, and so forth. So you have all of these policies that are pretty much universally agreed on to some extent. You don't hear Joe Biden and Trump arguing about Federal Reserve interest rate policies when the Federal Reserve is pretty much what centrally plans all of our you know, economics in the United States. This is a bipartisan thing that they all agree on. Um, but I, I, I guess what I'm getting at here is one of the top stories in the news is all about an Antifa shooter who may have shot a Trump supporter, and then he arguably did it in the name of racial justice, but there's not a lot of evidence that he needed to do it. And, and now everybody can argue more about the racial justice narrative instead of talking about an actual policy issue that we could actually expect our president to take um, you know, action on. Instead, it's who can say better words in the speech that are either more woke or are more rejecting of the narrative yet sympathetic and whatnot. None of that really matters. So that's everything about my, the, the Antifa shooter. And then you have more updates on Daniel Prude, who was the black man who a relative called the cops on because he was acting crazy and he was screaming. I think he was outside naked in the snow. And then the cops put a bag over his head, which this was early days of coronavirus back in March. The guy had said he had coronavirus. So they put a bag over his head that is supposed to be a type of bag that allows you to breathe. 
but it would keep all, I guess, the officers safe. So then that guy died while in police custody. Somebody had a knee on their back for like two minutes, and then they tried to resuscitate him when EMTs got there, but he died. So that that's a whole story, because now the officers have been suspended, and a bunch of people in that um, city are now writing about it. I think this was somewhere in Minnesota. And I, I the way it was covered by NPR's Up First was just so, so disheartening, because they'll put a bunch of things that are not necessarily untrue, but then by broadening it to a narrative, and, and it's just kind of like subtly like saying, obviously, the, the, you know, uh, obviously the, this is a representative situation of a broad narrative, and it's kind of racist if somebody disagrees with that narrative. And they don't provide evidence that this is an endemic problem. They just state that it is another one of these examples, and that obviously, you know, it's representative. And then up first, puts a clip of somebody they interviewed, which was a mother, uh, it was a black mother who had a, who has a black son, at least one, I think she might have had multiple, and I think that her son was like 21, something like that, and she pretty much is borderline screaming about how now she wakes up and is worried about her son's life every day in our country, and th- this is absolutely hysterical, but it's because of this narrative, and if anybody should be responsible for this woman feeling in that way, it's the media, because the media goes out there and acts like all these events that happen every couple months, they, they imply that they happen every single day, and that any black person that survives past the age of 25 in the United States is really a miracle, um, but that's that's not the case. This happens rarely, and when it happens, it's terrible, but generally, it's not a it's not a sign that there's this huge overwhelming narrative that black people are being victimized every corner by the cops. It's like, I'm sure there are a ton of racist cops because there are a lot of racist people, but that doesn't mean that every morning you should be worried that they're going to kill you. Um, so I, that, that I, I find this all very disheartening. This is being pushed. Um, th- then there were a couple other news stories that I don't think I'll delve into as much. The, the main one being if Trump um, really likes the troops because I guess there was a whole Atlantic report where some unnamed sources allege that he kind of said amputee uh, f- former soldiers are kind of gross, and he doesn't want those in any of his rallies. Um, and I've heard that he has had events as president where he had those p- people in like that type. Uh, they, 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 they were represented. So that, that might not be true, at least in action. But a bunch of people alleged he said things like that. He called a bunch of people who were dead in the cemetery losers, and, and so on. Um, I, I guess what I would say to this is, one, I wish there were named sources because that makes stories more valid, at least to some extent. The fact they have multiple unnamed sources doesn't really matter to me because none of them are named. Um, but if I took the story at its face value, as assuming it's true and whatnot, I would say, well, do I really care? Or I, well, what I really would care more is how does Trump's negative view of troops affect his foreign policy. And from everything I can tell, he doesn't really have a foreign policy. He just lets advisors, whatever advisor isn't rubbing him the wrong way at the time, he lets that advisor dictate everything. And he sometimes acts on his instincts, but it seems like a lot of his instincts are anti-war, and he really hasn't acted on most of those. So I, I guess I'd say, even if he thinks these things, it that doesn't really matter. It doesn't come up. Um, so why should I really care? Um... And the the underlying message is this un it, it, it's it's this this is part of what disgusts me about the left and right paradigm. Regardless of if it's coming from people over on MSNBC or not, it's always the, this underlying patriotism that's completely unfounded. And when it comes to the left, it's almost more grotesque because it's almost pseudo patriotism because they won't believe in certain I guess quote unquote founding ideals that you'll hear like 
Ben Shapiro talk about. But they, 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 they still feel the need to cite this um, unwarranted patriotism about, say, our troops. And it, it's kind of shocking to me because I don't want to, you know, did, I don't want to deride the, the military for the same reason I don't really want to deride somebody who thinks they're pursuing something very meaningful in their life. But I, I don't think there's anything uh, particularly honorable about being a service member because a lot of times the, their missions and their tasks aren't really doing any good. And I've heard this a lot from uh, the people over at the uh, Veterans for Volunteerism podcast. where They, they were kind of joking about how some days they, they'd just do these bomb sweeps that were kind of pointless. And people were, it was super sketchy. And some people just had really long sticks kind of po- poking around in the desert. And people didn't really know what their long-term missions were. And it's just like, you, you're just there because we feel obligated to be there for po- political purposes. And then there's these young dudes who are doing things that they'll probably survive. But th- there's a not zero chance that a bomb might just blow up and rip off their legs. Um, and, and I could also cite that that famous speech from the, the first Rambo movie, which is uh, First Blood, where he kind of goes on his whole his whole tirade about when he was uh, over in, I think, I, I guess I it would be Vietnam. Um, wow, I, f- I feel like it's probably bad that I didn't know immediately that was Vietnam, but I'm pretty sure it's Vietnam. I, I guess I still want to hedge that a little bit. Um, I, I have to assume it's Vietnam. Okay, aside from that, though, he's talking about him and his buddy were, were somewhere, and, and this is a big like monologue at the end of the movie, and you know, a kid comes up with like a shoe shine box, asks them if they want a shoe shine, and then all of a sudden, before he knows it, uh, an explosion happens. And his buddy, he's holding his buddy in his arms, and his buddy was just telling him about how he wanted to go home and drive his Corvette. And he's holding his buddy, but he sees that his buddy's legs are like on the other half of the room, and his buddy's saying they just wants to drive. And it's like the, this whole this whole scene's happening. That that's just this very impactful monologue. And the whole point though is Sylvester Stallone totally has PTSD from something that wasn't even that related to war, and why was he really over there? And then people, yeah, so. I, I think you have to respect it, because even if they ended up there and it's all for political purposes, you don't want to tell them that they're a bad person for, I guess, getting put in this pointless trap. But we, we, we do have this, like, unapologetic doubling down by the left about how all these service people should be inherently respected no, no matter what, even though we need to simultaneously be railing against the missions that they're put on, because most of the missions they're put out there to do are kind of pointless. And a lot of, you know, a lot of bases we have are just there so we could say we have representation there or like on the off chance that I guess anything happened. I guess I put that in quotes because that's probably how they'd hedge it. They'd probably say it's like a hedge against tail risks or something of the sort. Um, so, yeah, that, that story rubbed me the wrong way, though. So I, 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 I guess to, to, to bring that all together on the foreign policy front, even if Trump hates the troops, like, yeah, that'd be bad, but also it clearly doesn't affect his policy in any tangible way. It's character assassination, and it's not about policy at all, um, which just means it's kind of pointless to even waste our time and our brain space on. So those were the, all the top stories, I hate to say it. There wasn't even a substantive one that I see as, like, foreshadowing or setting the stage. That, that was pretty much it. Um, now, I did take the time to, to listen to something that I thought was, like, I guess the polar opposite of um, those stories I mentioned. And it was the World Economic Forecast podcast series called The Great Reset. I listened to three of the episodes. I didn't listen to the dialogue episode yet, but I've listened to the, the, the core three. And it's one of those things that isn't covered in the media, but it's what I expect a version of that policy, you know, the policymakers in our country are actually being presented at this time. 
So while all of us plebeians are watching these narratives unfold in front of us and we're reacting to them and we're just sitting here angry, stewing our hate, mad at each other, what the people in power are looking at is they're looking at these, I guess, pseudo-analytical frames of uh, interpreting what's going on. And these are all coming from, like, generally neoliberal think tanks. Um, I like to believe that they'd be listening to people like the Cato Institute that would roll back government power. But in the end, they're more listening to people like the World Economic Forum. Right. So the World Economic Forum puts out this series and it's very easy to access. But what it's but what it talks about is it's it's really all about how we should reset as a world in response to the coronavirus. And it says some things that are just really hard to listen to if you're small government oriented or if you're if, if you're oriented towards any kind of anarchism, because it just assumes that it's the government's job to control and plan everything. And this is something that is just not a premise that I'd be willing to see really at any level. Um, so a lot of things they talked about here are about expansions of social safety nets um, and then the way they want to look at fiscal issues. But they're hesitant to use markets because they think markets might be evil. That, uh, that's more or less what they're getting at. They talk a lot about social unrest, which uh, I would argue that the media kind of you know, I mean, I just kind of laid out my whole point about how the media sets up these narratives that create social unrest, but it talks about social unrest risks like income inequality and how those need to be reset as we come back from the coronavirus. And one sentence that one of the people that interviewed said that just like kind of shook me out of like the half paying attention days I may have been was that we need to build on the coronavirus urgency. And that that's just them outright telling you, I guess, the quiet part. It's kind of saying here's an emergency that people are legitimately worried about. And what we're going to do is we can cram in all these other policies that we kind of wanted to do on our wish list right now, because the time is right to do an overhaul. And that's what the great reset series is really all about. It's how can we overhaul everything since we kind of have an excuse. Um, and then they, they, they then they immediately after that part, they, they segued into talking a lot about green energy, which God, it was one of those things where, I don't like those right-wing pundits because they say things that are baseless every now and then. But when they attack the left, sometimes they're really, really right. And the fact that they could, that the World Economic Forum will bring on somebody who just says, hey, we have a moment of urgency that we need to capitalize on, and then immediately segues into green policy, and they talk about how, you know, the U.S. has spent $2.7 trillion on stimulus since coronavirus. Well, if we did that much a year on environmental policy, we'd be able to turn things around. It, it, it's just, it, it just wears me down because it's every characterization of the right that might seem over the top, like coming to true form. And it's not even on the mainstream news. It's in the World Economic Forum who are supposed to be like our betters that are PhDs with policies, right? These people are supposed to know what they're talking about. So I, I, I found that I found that very concerning that even they're kind of trying to preach in the background that we need to be pushing this green policy right now. And, and a lot of what I just mentioned is only from the first episode that the WEF released under the, this, the Great Reset kind of category. But then they go on to kind of, in general, trash free market capitalism, and they, they talk a lot about greed. And I think they are trying to pin a lot of things that were failing before coronavirus on free market capitalism, which really shouldn't surprise anybody at this point. 
they, 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 they think that we need to rebuild and they don't think capitalism is the way to do that in any capacity. And all of this kind of ends up tying around to like the, the, this general corporatism and statism where they want to redistribute it correctly, but then do things that are kind of market-based, but they don't really like how markets work. And all, all of that is just, I, you got to keep your eye on it because if that gets snuck in when Joe Biden's president, I wouldn't really be that surprised. Um, so that, that's kind of what I'm keeping my eye on. While that's not making the news, only those damn headlines that are just meant to make people angry. But all these other things are kind of flying under the radar, and that's why I keep my eye on things from like the World Economic Forum and the IMF and the Brookings Institute. And it's not because what it's not because necessarily the people are evil, because these people might actually think that 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 this is the way to go forward. But all of it's flying under the radar, and this is what people who are in like lobbyist groups for the left are going to cite because they are authoritative to those types of people. That the right typically doesn't necessarily respond to the WEF in the same way. But it, these things are things that can slip into the bipartisan consensus really quick. I mean, I was talking about the CDC in the last episode and about how we really don't have property rights anymore. So I think this could very easily fall under a similar category of, well, even though we pretend to be free marketeers over on the right, maybe we do think that all these redistributive policies are necessary because income inequality is something that they are concerned about because they might end up believing some of the myths that the World Economics Forum is happy to force. So I, I, I guess I'm going to keep my eye on that, and I'll let you know if I, if I keep seeing that message preached out or if I really want to, if I want to break down why I think all of what they're saying is so wrong and harmful. I might do that in the future. And I, I did also, I, I listened to this interview it was of uh, Paul McCauley. It was on Bloomberg's Odd Lots. And he talked a lot about capitalism and democracy and how these things interact. And Bloomberg gets, you know, a ton of listeners in that business community. And a lot of them are from like that neoliberal bend. Um, so I think I might want to do a deep dive on that interview specifically because he threw out a lot. And I think a lot of what he said can sound true to somebody just having a conversation you know, one-on-one, -on -one, you're just kind of hearing him out. It could sound valid, but I think a lot of what he was saying was unfounded. There were a lot of, like, key assertions he made that were very concerning to me. So I, I kind of wanted to flesh out why some of the things that he's saying that, that might seem okay are really harmful in a lot of, like, the neoliberals, the business community, and in the public-private, like, kind of overlay sector. So that's where you get, like, a lot of financial organizations that work near and dear with the Fed. All those people might have these ideas that are just false, and they might be harmful. And I might want to flesh those out more. So I, I might talk about that either in the, the next episode or in the upcoming episodes. So just keep your eye on out for that. Um, so I hope you enjoyed this episode where I, I broke down some more garbage that the media is throwing at you and kind of dug a little bit into the World Economic Forum. I, I hope you enjoyed and uh, hopefully I'll see you guys next episode. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a rating or review on your favorite podcatcher or share the podcast with a friend. You can find out more information about the Obey podcast at anchor.fm slash Obey podcast or on Twitter at the Obey podcast. Until next time. Next time.